you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, our text this morning is verses 7 through 12. Please hear the word of God. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Of little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come before you uh, this morning with your word open, uh, it being having just been read, and now as I open it up uh, and proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that for your help for me personally, and that you would open our ears to hear it, open our hearts to receive it, and to obey it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1984, the Summer Olympics were held in Los Angeles. And there was a a woman who was... uh, a star uh, for the um, for the American track team. She was a long distance runner. Uh, her name was Mary Decker. In 1982, she set six world records, all in these distance races from from the mile to the 10,000 meters and uh, many races in between. She had set all these world records. And so when the... uh, In fact, uh, during the the 1982 World Championships, uh, she had won both the 1,500 meters and the 300 meters. And they called it the the double-decker. And so when the Olympics came in 1984, she was heavily favored uh, to win. She she ran in the 1,500 meters. She won won it easily. And she was also also heavily favored to win the 3,000 meters. And in that 3,000-meter race, she was in, in control until the last 300 meters. And during that last 300 meters coming off the turn... There was a a young, a rather short uh, runner from South Africa named Zola Bud, and she passed Mary Decker, and she abruptly cut in front of her, and there was some jostling. They bumped each other a little bit. Mary Decker stumbled in stumbling and trying to regain her balance. Uh, her foot shot out, and they wear spikes in uh, in running, and her spike caught uh, Zola Bud's heel. 
Zola Budd was uh, unusual as a runner. She trained and she ran without shoes on, so she was barefoot. And so her spike, um, uh, Mary Decker's spike hit Zola Budd's heel. Zola Budd uh, stumbled a bit and tripped. Mary Decker, Mary Decker stumbled and fell on her face. Um, Many of you, I bet, can remember the agony on her face as the camera uh, went close up there during the 1984 Olympics. Um, I saw in researching researching this this week that it was uh, in the top 100 most memorable sporting um, occurrences or most memorable sporting events that had, had ever happened. Paul, here in Galatians, paints for us a similar picture. In verse 7, he says, you were running well. In other words, he's saying to the Galatians, you're like Mary Decker. You're running well, you're running freely. But all of a sudden, someone hindered you. Someone cut in front of you. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Someone had cut in front of them as they were running the Christian life. They stumbled and they were in danger of falling and dropping out of the race. Scripture, as I was telling uh, the children a a few minutes ago, Scripture often portrays the Christian life as a race. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And so the Apostle Paul says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, tells them, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And at the end of his life, Paul's last letter he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It is the desire of every Christian, of every person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, to run the race well. I know you... As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your desire, to run the race and win it. To run with that freedom that God gives you. To run that race to win it. In fact, I know as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are willing to sacrifice to win. Jesus says that His followers are willing to give up wealth, in all possessions here in this life in order to win that that race. 
They are willing to give up their reputation. Jesus even says they are willing to give up parents, to give up children, even to give up their spouse to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you. This race of running the Christian life. I know that that is your desire. But then the question becomes, if that is our desire, why is it so difficult to run this race? Why is it so difficult to run it well? Well, because there are many obstacles in the race. But one obstacle that we do not have is God. He says in verse 8, This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. In other words, it is not God who is hindering them. It is not God who is trying to turn them off, um, off the course. It's not God who is trying to trip them up. But doesn't it seem like it sometimes... Every time we try and sprint ahead in the Christian life, it seems like our path becomes filled with obstacles, with obstructions, with impediments, with difficulties, with complications, with conflicts, with hurdles. And God is sovereign. As I said in my prayer earlier, every good thing and every calamity comes from the mouth of God. So doesn't it seem like God is putting these hurdles in front of us? So why does Paul say that this persuasion is not from Him who calls you? In fact, even Scripture seems to back back it up that God puts hurdles in front of us. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in uh, preaching the Gospel during one of his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 14, Paul went and preached the good news and won a large number of disciples. They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. They strengthened the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And then Paul says this, We must go through many hardships to enter into the kingdom of God. And so then Paul encouraged them to put their trust in God and uh, he committed them to the Lord. And so we go through these hardships, these persecutions in order to enter into the kingdom of God, he says. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, he said, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul, Paul, Paul says, this is my ministry. In fact, if you were to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was attacked, how many times he spent sleepless nights, how many times he had to sleep out underneath the stars, how many times he had to go without food, how many times he was persecuted and chased from city to city. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, logically speaking, it seems as if God is going to turn the Apostle Paul loose on the world to go and preach the gospel. 
that what God would do would be to remove all the impediments, to remove all the obstacles, to remove all the conflicts. Instead, the Apostle Paul, in order to minister, in order to proclaim the name of Jesus, he had to go through all these sufferings. He had to go through all these persecutions. He was arrested repeatedly. He spent years in jail. First in Jerusalem and then transferred eventually over into Rome. And you would say, God, why are you bringing these hindrances? Any hindrances that God puts before us as we run the race of a Christian life are for our upbuilding. Verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? God never hinders you from obeying the truth. Remember James 1.13? When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But rather, when He puts a hurdle or an obstacle or a hindrance before you, it is to strengthen you in your faith. It is to strengthen you in your endurance in order that you might be able to run the race without giving up. In order that you may be able to go farther, faster. And so, in James chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, the Apostle James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And so here you are, you're running the Christian life, and you face a trial. Or literally, it says, when you fall into a trial. So here you are, you're running, you're running with joy, and you fall into a trial. They're unavoidable. But he says, consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The Apostle Paul says essentially the same, the same thing in Romans chapter 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. So anytime we have a hindrance or a hurdle or a wall in front of us as we are running the Christian life, God intends it for our good to build up our endurance so that we might run more successfully. But here in our, in our passage in verses 7 and 8, there are some people here who are trying to hinder them, uh, trying to hinder the Galatians in their race. And Paul's asking, who is this who's hindering you from obeying the truth? When I looked at this passage, and you have an outline on the back of your bulletin, but when I first looked at this, I looked at verse 9 where it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In my mind's eye, I thought of uh, Matthew 13 and Satan sowing these weeds amongst the, um, the wheat. And I thought about that as being the leaven that was sown um, that leavens the whole lump. Satan certainly tries to hinder us 
uh, in our um, in our running the Christian life that I don't think upon further re- reflection unfortunately after we went to print in the bulletin I realized that it was not referring to Satan at all what Paul's saying in verses uh, in verse 9 when he talks about a little leaven leavening the whole lump is really talking about um, the the law in fact, in Matthew 16, you remember Jesus as they're out on the boats after they had fed uh, the masses. Jesus said to the disciples, "Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees." And of course, the disciples, being thick-headed as they were given to being, began discussing it among themselves. We didn't bring any bread into the boat, and that's why he's telling us to to watch out for this leaven. But uh, Jesus. Uh, knowing what they were thinking about, he um, he told them that it was not about not having any bread. If they didn't have bread, he could create bread for them. And then they understood, it says in Matthew 16, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here about the little leaven leavening the whole lump is this idea of seeking to be justified by keeping the law. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, a pinch of law thoroughly contaminates the whole gospel. And that's why the book of Galatians is so important. Because we, like the Galatians, are so often tempted to find our spiritual security in our works to find our our security and our assurance of salvation in ourselves rather than in Jesus alone. We try and find our uh, assurance of salvation from our from the sincerity of our faith, or from our past experience of conversion, or from our recent religious performance. Well, I've, I've been in church now for. Uh, four weeks in a row. I've read my Bible every day, or at least I've read it three out of five days. I'm doing better than most. And so we find that assurance in what we do. Or from the opposite side, we find our assurance from the relative uh, infrequency of our conscience, willful disobedience. And so we say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good because I haven't sinned willfully um, very often here lately. And so we find our assurance in what we do rather than in Christ alone. The Pharisees, I mean not Pharisees, the Judaizers here were were injecting the law into the gospel. They're saying, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you really can't be a Christian. You really can't have, cannot have a relationship with God unless you're also circumcised. And so this is that leaven that is working its way through the congregation. And uh, the Apostle Paul tells them to be wary of that. And so I want to tell you, be wary. Be on guard against finding your security, finding your assurance of salvation in what you do. Because it will affect how you run the Christian life. In fact, most Christians that I know 
their lives seem to, to swing between discouragement and apathy on the one hand or pride on the other. Discouraged and, and apathy because they are looking at all the things that they didn't do or all the things that they should have done better and basing their assurance on that weak foundation, on that foundationless foundation of what they've done for God. Or pride, on the other hand, well, I'm, I've not been that bad. I've been particularly faithful here recently in finding their assurance and security based on what they've done, and that leads to pride and to self-righteousness. And so I think that's what he's saying in verse um, 9. And then as we move on to verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Here he's saying that outside influences the world, really, tries to hinder us. Uh, the Judaizers... Outside influences uh, trying to hinder them in their in their walk with Christ, and you can see Paul's anger with them in verse twelve. I wish those who unsettle you, who are teaching that you must be justified through circumcision, he says, I wish they would go ahead and emasculate themselves. In verse 12. But in verse 10, we also see where Paul places his confidence. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. In other words, what he's saying is he's saying, I know you're being hindered. I know that they have caused you to trip. I know you're in danger of falling on your face. But God ultimately will hold you up if you belong to Him. I have confidence in the Lord, he says, that you'll take no other view than mine. God will hold them. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 38, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is not our grip on God, but His grip on us that holds us. I could make many applications concerning the people who uh, try to hinder us in our, in our running the Christian life. There are people who would be jealous of our freedom in Christ. There would be people, especially in our society, who, are, who would be scared of our morality and they would try and hinder us in our walk with Christ. There are theological liberals and cults. And yes, I did lump them together. Just as um, J. Gresham Machen in his book put... Uh, Liberalism on the other side of the of the um, conjunction from Christianity, um, theological liberals cults they try to to hinder us in our walk with Christ and our race um, in the Christian life. Paul says here in our text that they will be judged. Again, verse 10. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. 
God in His infinite justice. God in His hot justice. Because He is so, He so loves His children. Anyone who calls us them or tries to cause them to stumble or tries to hinder them in their race with Him, He will bring them to account. What did Jesus say? It is better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and them be thrown to the bottom of a river than cause one of His little ones to stumble. Your confidence is in that God will hold you and those who try and hinder you, He will bring to account. We also, unfortunately, hinder ourselves in running the Christian life, in running the Christian race. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning His shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Our struggle to run the Christian life ultimately points to our own sinfulness. We like to blame others. Those Judaizers and their teaching. Those liberals and their, and their questioning the authority of the Bible. Those cults or, or someone else. My parents' upbringing or whatever. We like to blame other people. But when it's all said and done, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We would not, we could not be hindered unless we allow ourselves to be hindered. James 1.14 Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. We have hindrances before us. And by God's power we are more than overcomers. We are able to jump over every hurdle like uh, the greatest uh, sprinter or hurdler that has ever lived except that we trip ourselves up. Sin entangles us when by our own evil desire we are dragged away and enticed. I enjoy watching these uh, sports blooper shows and I was watching one in the last couple of weeks and there was this girl running the, hur- running the hurdles and she was, she was beating everybody by like 30 yards and she looked back to see where everybody was and when she looked back she tripped and stumbled and she tried to hurt she should have just stopped and then backed up and ran and she would have still been doing well but instead she tried to jump the hurdle while she was stumbling she tripped and she ate that hurdle face first and I loved it My roommates and I in college would watch uh, America's Funniest Home Videos and you knew what was going to happen. And we would all, we would just wait with such anticipation. You know, when the dad's pitching the ball to the small child, you knew what was going to happen. And when it happened, we just died with laughter. I don't know what that says about me, but... But uh, that girl running that race, she hindered herself by looking back. We will not be hindered because we are more than overconquerors through Him who loved us. 
unless we choose to be hindered. Why, finally, are so many obstacles placed in our path? And I think we'll see the answer in verse 11, but I'm not going to read it yet. I simply want to have that question. Why are so many obstacles placed in our path when we... When it is our desire to run the Christian life and God desires us to run, to run well, and to win, why are so many obstacles there? One of the most important reasons why we run this Christian race. One of the most one of the reasons why God just doesn't simply save us and then take us up to heaven immediately. One of the reasons He leaves us, the primary reason He leaves us here on earth is that we might proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we run the Christian Christian, uh, race, it is our task to be God's ambassadors, proclaiming to people they must be reconciled to God, and that God has made that reconciliation possible through Jesus Christ. And so... We are to run and we are to shout. We are to proclaim to people, Jesus Christ has come to earth. And He came to earth to save sinners. That should be, that should be our proclamation as we run. The Great Commission. Go ye, therefore, to all nations, to the entire earth. Proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that gospel that we proclaim involves a cross. We read earlier in our responsive reading that that cross is offensive. That Jesus Christ is offensive. And so here in verse 11, But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The implication here is that the cross is offensive and we, it should not be removed. That rather, it should be offensive to people who have not fled to Jesus. And so as we run the Christian race, as we proclaim Christ, a lot of the obstacles that we face are because we are proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel, His cross, is offensive. That last verse we read in the responsive reading, there is no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. That is offensive to people because they say that is exclusive. And we say yes, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. We are to proclaim Him and His cross. And His cross is offensive. Let me illustrate some ways that His cross is offensive. If you are here this morning, and you like to think of yourself as being successful, or you are here this morning and you like to think of yourselves, yourself as being honorable, if you, like, if you are here this morning and you like to think of yourself as being better than most, or not that bad, or you like to think of yourself as being sophisticated and wise. The cross says you are wrong. 
The cross says you are so needy and so sinful that God Almighty had to come here to earth to take on flesh, to die a horrible death on the cross. And there is no other way you could be saved. That is how sinful you are. That God had to die and that is the only way you could be saved. And so, if you are here this morning and you like to think of yourselves as successful, honorable, Jesus says without Him you can do nothing. The cross says you have nothing. You have no reason to brag. No reason for self-confidence. That's why Paul says when he boasts, he boasts only in the cross. The cross says we are nothing. But at the very same time, it says that Jesus is everything. Jesus had to come and die for your sins. But the other side of the coin is, He loved you so much that He came and died for your sins. He embraced that cross. He clung to that cross until He said, It is finished. And all the sins of His people had been paid for completely. Thoroughly. So the bad news, the offensive news, is really the good news. Jesus Christ loves sinners. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And the best news is, He says, Come to Me. Trust in Him alone and not in your works, not in your sincerity, not in your relative um, goodness, but trust in Him alone. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, I pray that Christ, who is that rock of stumbling that causes uh, people to fall, Father, I pray that there are any here who do not know Him, that they would fall upon Him, that their pride, that their self-righteousness would be crushed by Him, and that they would trust in Him alone. Father, I pray there would not be any here who would leave here um, secure in their pride or their self-righteousness because they only have an expectation, a horrible expectation, that the rock who causes men to stumble will one day crush them. Father, I pray that you would help us to run the race marked out for us. I pray you would help us to gain the crown of righteousness that you have set aside for those who love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.